Welcome to Intergalactic Tarbush, eclectic conversations from the MENA with Iyad al-Baghdadi and me, Ahmed Gatnash. We talk about politics, activism, tech, spirituality, mental health, and more. Hey man, what's up? How's it going? How's it going on your side? Not bad. So I just got back from a conference in Oxford um, with a group of uh, Arab academics, um, academics, specialists, researchers, strategists, um, talking about the region from the bigger picture. Um, And the entire thing was uh, conducted in Arabic uh, exclusively. And that made me think of a question, which is, um, do you think the language we speak affects the way we think? Yeah, so I heard two things about this, and uh, it is a very interesting uh, question. So I think that there was like a psychological theory uh, that suggested this. If I remember correctly, it was the Sapir-Whorf uh, theory. Wait, let me Google it. This is the advantage of actually uh, recording while you can you, you can look at your uh, at your browser. Yeah, but you got to have faster Googling skills. Yep. So that was one, like, let's upload. The second one was uh, this idea that our mother tongue is our emotional language. Uh, hmm. Meanwhile, the second language that we learn, especially if it's an academic language that we learn for the purpose of uh, study, it's a, it's a more logical language, it's less, it's less emotional. Uh, and so uh, essentially the idea is that when you are using your mother tongue, you are more likely to be emotional. Meanwhile, when you're using your second language or academic language, you are more likely to be, uh, to be logical and rational. I don't know if it's, uh, you know, if, if there's any truth to that. So I was thinking of it from a slightly different perspective, which is um, basically the ideas that we absorb from our context. Um, and what I was thinking was basically when we speak about when we speak about the region in the English language, um, whether consciously or not, there's often some level of us that's aware that we are speaking to a wider audience and therefore we're altering the framing. Um, and also in the English language, we absorb certain frames of reference from the other people who speak about the same topic in that language. So maybe you're um, kind of using vocabulary and terminologies or frames of reference which are used in an academic context which are developed by foreign academics and observers and specialists and maybe when you're speaking in arabic you're mi- you're more likely to be speaking from within a frame of reference that you've picked up from hearing you know very grassroots discussions um from ordinary people um and i was thinking about that a lot i was just wondering like would i say exactly the same thing if i'd prepared my um contribution in english instead of arabic or would it have been you know slightly different I mean, I, I always feel like, you know, you know, like, because the Arabic language is different enough from, from Indo-European languages, it's a Semitic language, uh, but I think there's also enough difference in style that when you read Arabic language that has been translated from English, you immediately spot it. You can see that, okay, this was actually originally not written in Arabic. Someone translated it into Arabic. Meanwhile, you can actually see, okay, this was actually written in Arabic. And so sometimes, I mean, it, it became kind of a pet peeve for me because I really hate that. Uh, I love the Arabic language. Uh, and so when I do translation, I used to do a lot of translation uh, back in my early days of activism. I used to actually kind of bend the rules because I'm not actually translating, I'm rewriting in Arabic. 
uh, and so uh, I, a lot of people would be would be reaching out like, no, what? Wait, you didn't use the right la the, ri the right word there. The right like, if you want a literal translation, I'm like, yeah, I know, uh, I know that, but uh, it just it's it's just very different when you like if you actually want me to say this to Arabs, I'm not going to use the same paradigms. I'm not going to use the same metaphors. I'm not going to be using the same like I'm going to say it in a different way, right? Uh, but yeah, this, the second theory is basically uh, the, the Saper-Whorf hypothesis, uh, also also known as linguistic relativity, and it's it's kind of what you're saying here. It's like basically that um, language affects our worldview, uh, our our worldview. Uh, essentially, that uh, language is kind of like the building blocks of thoughts. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I don't think it's true, but uh, the, the whole idea is it, it, the whole idea is that you know there is some impact. Language does have an impact on the way that we think on, on our on our you know or on our conceptual structures. I'm not sure uh, if I'd go as far as to say languages are the building block of thoughts, but I definitely say there's some level of abstraction where unless you can actually give it a term and define it, then you can't really think it with precision. Or at least it's very difficult to. No, not not quite, because there are people, for example, who are musicians who don't really who can again think precisely about something, but it's a music, it's music, right? Or people who are paint painters, artists, etc. So there is that, uh, but I think that there. Are, I mean, there's enough. Maybe of, those are uh, additional languages, though. I'd certainly say music could it, be an additional. It could language. be, but then you know we're kind of uh, kind of shifting shifting the whole idea of language there. Uh, but anyway, it's it's fascinating. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, I've been. I mean, I think we we talked about this in in, in previous uh, in previous conversations, uh, even including on this on this uh, on this podcast. But I have been like really saddened by the decline of the Arabic public sphere. Uh, so it is refreshing. It's it's you know what's more most poignant about what you just said about this 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 conference this uh, you know this this event. It's mm -hmm. that such an event can never happen inside the Arabs, the Arab world. It's yeah. that Arabs are free to use their their language to speak about their in their you know the, the future of their countries in London, but they cannot do that in Damascus. They cannot do that in Dubai. They cannot do that in Riyadh. They cannot do that in Cairo. Uh, and and this had has had an impact, not only on the Arabic public sphere, but really on the language itself. Because we, I mean, we're two Arabs and we're having an English language podcast. For multiple reasons, but one of them is that if we do this in Arabic, there's going to be censorship, there's going to be trolling, there's going to be disinformation, there's going to be hacking, and uh, you know, eventually um, uh, the, the conversation is going to die. And we've seen this like repeatedly. I mean, uh, I, I always feel like one of the things, like back when I used to live in the United Arab Emirates before I was uh, arrested and expelled from the country, um, uh, I, when I became an activist in 2011, I kind of made a decision to tweet in English, not in Arabic. I used to do both, but like I, I thought that you know I should lean more into English. Uh, and part of it was self-censorship. Part of it was like, wait, wait, wait. If I say this in English, they might I might get away with it. But if I say the exact same same thing in Arabic, they're gonna arrest me right away. Uh, but it's sad. It's sad because uh, you know there's some really important conversations that we're simply not being able, not able to have in our own language, and so eventually. We have to borrow the paradigms and you know and metaphors etc of another language for it yeah this also made me think about our extremely long-running ambition to eventually have an arabic language podcast as part of quite foundation and yeah. you know i hope we'll get hopefully, there someday hopefully with, with also along with an expanding expanded staff 
Uh, but yeah, I mean, when when you the, the thing about doing it in Arabic is that you have to you have to do it big, because you know that you're going to be attacked. You know that uh, you also know that the, the the audience is more fragmented. The public sphere is more is the fundamentals of the public sphere in the Arabic language are are, are weaker, and so uh, maybe that is what is needed. A lot of a lot of really good content in Arabic. Maybe maybe we should we should be leaning more into that. But then again, I mean, the thing is, I mean, you know, I, I have a son, seven years old who is growing up with four languages. So I have only ever spoken to him in, English, in Arabic. I only speak to him in Arabic. Uh, his mother speaks to him in, in, in Urdu. She's Pakistani. Um, we speak English to each other, like me and his mother. So he picked up English. Uh, and he's learning Norwegian at home. Uh, sorry, uh, at school. Uh, so it's different, like different parts of his life have a different kind of language to them, right? But nobody actually addresses him in, in English. Nobody actually speaks to him in English. Despite that, he is leaning more and more and more and more into English to the point that now he's mixing English with Arabic. And the reason is, is, is uh, you know, first of all, uh, it's utility. You know, kids eventually are going to do what's useful to them, especially, you know, my, my, my kid is uh, he's, he's, he's slightly autistic, like his father. Um, and so he's... Uh, uh, He's he's trying like he's like this is the language that's useful because if I speak in Arabic only my father will, will understand me if I speak in 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 Urdu only my mother will understand me but if I speak in English everybody understands me so that's one factor but the other factor which is important is that his YouTube shows are all in English his uh, gaming reviews are all in English his you know the games that he plays he, they're all in English and all of the content online that is interested is all in English. And so eventually he taught him, like, we didn't even teach him how to read and write. He just taught himself that, right? Uh, because, you know, he's, he's extremely online, right? Uh, but then that kind of teaches us a, a wider lesson. It's not just really about, about, about my child, right? It's also that uh, picking a language is really a matter of which is useful. So if there is a lot of content in that language, it becomes more useful. So if there's not enough content in the Arabic language, the Arabic language becomes less useful globally. And mm. whether we like it or not, we're not like there's not enough uh, content in, in, in Arabic. And the fact is that there can't be more content in Arabic until there's less censorship in, in Arabic. As long as it's a constrained public sphere, it becomes a dying public sphere and a dying language, effectively. I, I remember how you said it. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, a few years ago, you were, you were actually commenting on, uh, uh, on climate change. And uh, you said that you know uh, climate change is like like our region, the Middle East and North Africa is 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 probably the region that has to be the most worried about climate change. But there is nothing that we can do about it until we have democratic governance. And I feel that this is this is a similar case here. Like there's there's very little that we can do if you know 400 plus between 400 and 500 million people inside uh, you know Arab majority countries. Um, can't express themselves freely. Um, so, so I was listening to this uh, podcast recording uh, with Hisham Matar the other day, um, you know, a Libyan author who uh, has affected both of us greatly, I think, with his work. Yeah. Um, his book, The Return, is incredibly poignant, and I recommend it to everyone. Um, but one of the questions that came up um, was, um, someone asked him something like, are you an Arab writer, or do you consider your work to be Arabic literature? Um and he basically said that it was an open question for him because, you know, we all have this kind of these questions about identity and he writes in the English language primarily. Um, and he recounted a story about him 
speaking to uh, an Arabic writer from the previous generation and asking him that question. And the guy basically said, you belong to the language that you write in. Um, and I disagreed with that because I thought, um, you know, he does write in the English language and possibly a previous uh, version of myself who was also insecure in his own identity would have said, therefore, you're not like truly an Arab because you're not speaking Arabic, therefore you're not speaking to Arabs. Um, but when I heard that, I immediately thought, regardless of the language you're speaking, though, you are speaking to the contemporary Arab experience and probably speaking to it more honestly than anybody because you're, t you're telling the story of, you know, the enforced disappearance of your father for political dissent and activism. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, uh, I believe, a, uh, a Kenyan author who, uh, who decided at some point that he would no longer write in, uh, you know, he, he writes both fiction and nonfiction. And at some point he decided that he's not going to write any new fiction uh, except in his own language. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I can write nonfiction in English, but, but, uh, but for, some, for, for something that's heartfelt... I'm always going to, to write in my original language. But of course, translations are available. So basically, he, he originally wrote it there. It's like, okay, it could be translated to English. Uh, but I mean, that's kind of speaks like what Hisham Matar says, also kind of speaks to the fact that, uh, you know, like a few years ago, when we did kind of audience analysis about our, our second podcast, or actually the first podcast, the Arab Tyrant Manual, to just see, you know, where 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 is the audience coming from? we realized that our top three cities, like we, we're sitting, I mean, you're in, you're in the United Kingdom, I'm in Norway, and we realized that our top three cities are Dubai, Jeddah, and Riyadh. Uh, three Arabic cities, uh, and this is an English language podcast. And so we realized that we actually have a pretty big uh, audience inside the Arab world by English-speaking Arabs. Uh, but then, you know, for a lot of content creators, you know, let, let's face it. I mean, a lot of it is laziness, really, even on our behalf. I don't want to call it laziness, but rather lack of resources. Because if I create an English language podcast, I'm consolidating my audience. So it's it's going to, I mean, a lot of, a lot of our audience are already Arabs. Uh, but then this is also going to everybody. If I do it in Arabic, then I have to do two podcasts. Because I have to do one for everybody and one for Arabs. Uh, and uh, in some cases, it just becomes easy, difficult to, to gather resources and, and time to actually do two podcasts at the same time. Yeah, I think there's good reason that our first podcast was in English, but I think there's also very good reason that maybe our next one should be the Arabic language. And maybe that won't be us. Maybe that'll be us with somebody else or other members of the team. Um, like it's still yeah, a, it could be, it an could idea. be a team member we haven't met yet. Uh, you know, like may maybe this will inspire someone to reach out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, earlier yeah. today, I kind of realized that a lot of our recent episodes of Intergalactic Tarbush have been kind of serious. Uh, like, I, I think that like, the first few episodes are kind of like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, eclectic. But then I think with the, uh, I think with the recent events, the invasion of Ukraine, etc., it kind of uh, had an impact. And like, we basically leaned into more serious topics for good reason. Um so the, the other day, I mean, of course, I, I realize this is also an extension of what I'm interested in for that, you know, when, when I sit down, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about what I'm, what, you know, what, what, what I've been reading or etc. So I actually realized that, you know, maybe I should stop watching news and maybe I should start going, go back to watching, you know, science and, uh, and, and tech, etc. Uh, you know, and geology, etc. videos. 
Um, and so, like, I, I just want to share this really fascinating, uh, uh, you know, fact. I don't think it's a fact, it's kind of a theory still, but really fascinating thing here. Uh, so I don't know if you're aware, but you know, like those pictures where you see a cross section of the earth, uh, and they're kind of like they're telling you what's inside the earth, right? And yeah. uh, classically speaking, like we, we, we even saw it like in science class when we we're like in school. The idea is that, you know, there's an inner core like this. It's concentric circles, right? Apparently, this is not completely true because inside the mantle, there are plumes, uh, you know, from from the, you know, within the mantle, like large superstructures uh, that kind of look like blobs, like kind of like blobs uh, on. I think there's, there's two big ones. One of them is in under Africa and one of them is under the Pacific Ocean. And uh, they were a mystery for a very long time. It's like, you know, like, why? Uh, especially that I think they correlate to volcanic zones on the surface. Um, and I read the other day that, you know, uh, the two blobs actually have different, you know, slightly different origins. Like, they're kind of different from each other. So apparently the one that's under Africa is actually a remnant of subducted oceanic, oceanic crust. So basically like tectonic plates kind of like, you know, kind of go under each other and then eventually it has to go somewhere. And apparently, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of like, uh, you know, uh, of the, you know, the planet impact that created the moon. So, you know, like recycled uh, crust under Africa. But then the fascinating thing is that the, the one under the Pacific is different. It, it might be a remnant almost immediately. I think, I think like within, I think, uh, I, th I think uh, the Earth is like 4.7 billion years old. And then at 4.5 billion years old, it was struck by, it, basically it was, uh, it was impacted by, by a Mars-sized, I think the second, the other planet was basically destroyed. Part of, this is part of the reason why we have a large moon, because the moon kind of split off from that. Like that, that's basically what created the moon. Uh, interestingly, the, 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 you know, the, the, the research that I read kind of suggests that this impact and, you know, the fact that, you know, this blob is kind of a remnant of that explosion of that, of that impact. I don't know if it is actually a remnant of the actual second planet that hit the, the earth, or it's basically just a, a, an anomaly inside the earth. But then the idea is that that might have kicked off uh, tectonic plates, tectonic motion. Because you don't see tectonic motion on other planets, like you know, like you look at the moon, for example, and there's a, like the the surface does not 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 get crater, like and it's there for millions of millions of years, and there's like one of the main reasons why Earth is a living planet is because it has tectonic uh, motion, and apparently part of that is you know because it was impacted, but the second is that it has a very large moon, so like this impact created this very large moon because the moon by uh, you know. By planetary standards, it's much bigger than any other moon in the you know compared to the Earth than uh, than other moons in the in the solar system. It's like twenty seven percent the 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 size of the Earth. Uh, so apparently, the fact that there's a moon there tugging at, at at the planet kind of like loosens up those tectonic plates, kind of subduct. Uh, the other reason, of course, is that there's a lot of water on Earth, and like the water kind of uh, um, uh, what do you say has an impact on on uh, uh, kind of lubricating tectonic motion. So it seems that had the Earth not been impacted, uh, it wouldn't have been. Uh, I mean, and had it had it not been that kind of impact, that at that angle, at that you know, to create uh, you know the conditions for life, uh, it, life wouldn't have existed here. So it's not just basically that the Earth is in the habitable zone, etc. It's also that you know, 
we uh, we got lucky to 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 have a, to to get a planet. Of course, I don't think we, it's not that we got lucky. It's that uh, it's an extension. We we are here because of that. It's changed since I was a kid and I was learning about you know geology and the Earth's mantle, etc. Um, I was even uh, I read a news article the other day about this new um, dinosaur bone discovery. I think there were a couple of them: one with a flying dinosaur and one with a T. Rex. And they basically proposed that T. Rex was actually three different species that lived at different times because there was a distinction yeah. in their anatomies. Um, so it's just so cool that like all of these topics are constantly evolving. The science and the knowledge around them are constantly evolving. So I just want to add some one thing before we end this recording. Uh, as I understand more why the moon is so like the moon is associated with certain things that make life habitable, and the moon basically split off from the Earth, uh, kicking off this process by which you know we we have life on Earth. I kind of am starting to have another look at uh, the Quran's uh, verse "Waqtarabat al-Saat wa al Qamar." That the earth, that the the moon was split, right? I no longer think that this is like like a lot. The the, the traditional uh, tafsir for this is that the moon itself split, uh, yeah. and I don't think that at all anymore. I think no, the the moon split off, because the word in shak in Arabic actually means to secede or to you know to split off, right? To splinter. Uh, so I I think that this is like the science is actually giving us this this very new look at even our tafsir. Yeah, and I think there are some interpretations that the moon will split as a sign of the Day of Judgment. And you're basically saying that this is uh, possibly actually a description no, no, of a past I think, event. I think it was. I mean, I'm pretty convinced. I'm, I'm actually pretty convinced that this, this verse is really about the, the beginning of creation, not the end of creation. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like I, 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 talked, I talked about this too much. So let's, uh, let's, let's call it a recording. Yeah, I think it's good that we ended on that quite satisfying yeah. theory. Catch you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. To support us, please leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find the link to our Patreon in the episode description. See you next time.